Okay, so I did have a laptop, a huge, ginormous, heavy laptop, right? But I didn't. I remember not being able to like afford Wi-Fi, so I would go to Walmart and I would get those discs, those AOL discs, for like five hundred minutes. Shanita Hubbard is a professor and the author of a forthcoming book called Miseducation, A Woman's Guide to Hip Hop. But back in 2000, she was a college student who jumped through a lot of hoops to talk to her friends on the internet. And there was one site that made it all worth it. We couldn't use the phone and be on it at the same time. So it was just like, oh my gosh, you're still on Black Planet. I'm trying to make this phone call. (laughs) Black Planet. Before MySpace and Facebook were a twinkle in the internet's eye, there was Black Planet. It was pre-Black Twitter before Black Twitter was a thing, right? And it was really our space. It was a place where Black folks could be creative and hang out with friends and also meet new friends. I went to an HBCU in the South. So it was a way for me to connect with other sorority and fraternity members that went to different HBCUs throughout the South or throughout the region, right? It was cool because it was like, oh, hey, what's going on? Is a party at your school? Sure, there were parties, but it was also a place where folks could support each other professionally. That was fantastic, but then it also changed, it turned into, oh wow, this is internship available. So it turned into a wonderful networking opportunity. And look, if you're going to meet people for parties and internships, you can bet everybody's dating too. See, this is when dating online still had that cliche, right? So it was a little bit embarrassing. Like, girl, I didn't mean to connect with him here, but he was cute. So yes, it was actually like pre-Tinder before it was Tinder. The cool thing about Black Planet is that it connected all kinds of Black folks across the U.S. and beyond. Everybody was on it. By 2001, it had 2.5 million registered users. But unlike other startups of the time, that popularity didn't lead to a huge investment or a big, splashy IPO. Welcome to Go For Broke. I'm Julia Furlan. Last episode, we talked about how the Netscape IPO showed investors that it paid to be in the dot-com business and everyone wanted in. There was a lot of money going around and a feeling that all you had to do was start an internet company and wait for the venture capitalists to cut a check. And we all know what happened next. There were some smart investments and some companies managed to survive like Amazon.com. But there were a whole hell of a lot of other not-so-great investments, and that's why we're here talking about the dot-com bubble 20 years later. In this episode, we're going to examine how venture capital works and what made it such a powerful force in the dot-com bubble. To talk about venture capital and all this money, we're going to tell the story of two early social networking startups, Black Planet and TheGlobe.com. TheGlobe.com is a textbook example of the dot-com boom. It secured a $20 million investment before going public. And when they did have their IPO, the stock price jumped so high it broke a record. In the big money grab, TheGlobe.com got paid. Black Planet, on the other hand, had a much harder time getting investors to pay attention. Both of these companies were social media startups when the internet was still new, but they had very different experiences when it came to raising money. Their stories lend insight to how venture capitalists were making decisions during the dot-com boom. Katerina Fake, you know her from the last episode. She co-founded Flickr and is now a venture capitalist. She explains it this way. So basically, VCs invest in super high-risk businesses with the hope that one of the companies in their portfolio will be a home run, they call it, like a 10xer or like a big success with the understanding that most of the others are going to fail. It tends to seek businesses that are quote-unquote high growth 
meaning that they can, you know, grow quickly, grow fast, grow big, make a ton of money in a short period of time so that there is an exit. And the exit can be a kind of a big acquisition or it can be an IPO. But not every startup got that opportunity. VCs would fund startups based on their gut or whether the startup had a cool sounding name. And VCs have biases like everybody else. So that meant that they gave money to who they believed in, not necessarily the company with the best business plan. And Black Planet's founder, Omar Wasso, says that that's exactly what he was facing when he launched the company in 1999. Omar was a self-described nerd who'd been playing around with social networking sites since 1993. He created this site to be a place for Black folks to get to build their own community. He named it after the public enemy album, Fear of a Black Planet. Here's Omar. Whether you're talking about HBCUs or black churches or you know, sororities and fraternities or just a long tradition, um, sometimes as a function of segregation, sometimes as a function of, uh, you know, wanting to marry somebody in the same group, that there's just like these really tight networks in the black community and that that was a very natural fit for the Internet. Almost immediately, Black Planet blew up. There was a moment where it just swept through high school and colleges also. If, like, if you were in college at a certain moment, it was just like the Black community was all on Black Planet. Omar thinks that it wasn't just the parties or networking opportunities that drew people to Black Planet. It was the fact that it felt like it belonged to the folks who used it. People actually taught themselves to code HTML just so that they could trick out their Black Planet pages. You can use Facebook and not know anything about HTML. Our users on Black Planet were becoming smarter about technology because in order to, you know, show off, you needed to learn a little bit of this, you know, sort of web formatting language, hypertext markup language, and that allowed you to be cooler on the site. Here's Shanita again talking to producer Bridget Armstrong about her page. Girl, we were coding. Now that I think back to the skill set that we were developing, we were like coding. Do you remember what your page looked like? Girl, yeah. <laughs> I remember my handle. It was um Natural Beauty 79. Cause I was right after I had um just cut my relaxer out. So, you know, I had the fro popping and it actually looked like very chic, very 70s throwback-ish. With I was a super neo, so like mad Zeta stuff all over it. Unlike a lot of other internet startups at this time, Black Planet's technology was solid. What made us cool was the nerdiest thing, which is that we cared a lot about, like, boring details in the product. Hell, even Omar himself was like Mr. Early Internet. A year after Black Planet launched, he was out there teaching Oprah the Winfrey how to use the internet. Omar and Sophie were our personal trainers. Boy, did they have a challenge in store for them. What's a link? A link is a hook-em-up. A hook-em-up that you get through through the click-em. That's right. That's right. <laughs> But even with that big Oprah promo and tons of popularity, it didn't mean much to the venture capitalists who were bankrolling the dot-com boom in 1999. Omar eventually raised $5 million to launch Black Planet, but it wasn't easy. It was definitely harder than it should have been given how leading edge our technology was and how much the potential was for this large, very tightly networked African-American community. There were black investors who got who totally understood the idea of a black social network, but were a little skeptical that the market was big enough. There were white investors who just didn't understand why would African-Americans want to socialize? Isn't the world becoming, you know, is, they weren't using the word post-racial, but they, they had this idea of like everybody, nobody's going to care about race in the future. So why would anybody want uh, a social network that had some kind of ethnic or racial, um, you know, kind of watering hole? 
You know, I know, and Omar knew that this was just plain racism. But back then, Omar was told Black Planet didn't fit the model that most venture capitalists were looking for. They wanted to invest in companies that could dominate a huge market and be the place where people searched the internet, like Netscape, or bought their dog food, like Pets.com. But Black Planet was serving a specific community. And VC stands for Venture Capital, not Venture Community. You can only do the things that they pay you to do. That's Anil Dash. He's our editorial consultant for this series and the CEO of the software company Glitch. He says that the drive to get investment money changed the way entrepreneurs thought about building up their companies. So all of a sudden you can't be like, I would purely like to make a community that three people are going to run that succeeds on making a million dollars a year in revenues. Which is a perfectly reasonable revenue goal, he says, for a small company with passionate users that's content with scaling slowly. But VCs wanted to see limitless potential for growth. And so all of a sudden you're like, well, I guess I have to be grandiose in my ambitions because I can't get funded saying I just want to make something for my community. This is just part of the way venture capitalism works. VCs want a huge return on their investment because they know most of their bets will fail. Let's say you and I start a business um, in a garage and we put in our life savings. Rana Faruhar is an economic analyst and columnist at the Financial Times. But back in the 90s, she was a partner at a VC firm. And then we grow it a little bit and a venture capitalist comes along and gives us a couple hundred thousand dollars. And he has taken a lot of risk at that point because we're still only two people or four people or six people. And so he wants a lot of return for that risk. He maybe wants to make back 10 times his investment. Um, and you get bigger and bigger. And then at some point, you need to be able to cash out. The venture capitalists need to get paid back for taking that risk. The entrepreneurs, understandably, want to get paid back for taking some of that risk. And ideally, you want to bring a company that has a great idea that still can grow into the public market so that everybody with their 401k can get a piece of it. Before the dot-com bubble, VCs were still interested in making big bets and cashing out, but they were at least giving money to companies that might be able to deliver. You know, like companies that might have a proven track record or a product, but just not enough capital to scale up. Then you had these digital technologies, um, which were tremendously different than anything we've seen in the past. You had this shift to an intangible economy. You had people trying to figure out the rules of the game. It was clear that you needed to get in and, and get the market as fast as you could and not worry about profits. But that also meant that there were going to be many more losers than winners. And so everybody wanted to feel that sense of irrational exuberance, um, as, as Alan Greenspan so aptly put it. Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan used the phrase irrational exuberance in a speech way back in 1996. But he wasn't the only one who saw what was coming. But at the end of the day, everybody kind of also knew that there were going to be tears. But I remember being in this period, there was a sense of uh, suspended disbelief, um, a sense of, well, we know the market will correct at some point, but you got to keep playing. You got to, what was the famous Chuck Prince quote from 2008? You know, as long as the music is playing, you got to get up and dance. In the grand tradition of the dot-com bubble that started with the Netscape IPO in 1995, VCs started throwing money at tech startups that just seemed like they could be huge, even when they hadn't proven themselves. And VCs were looking for companies that could deliver on that. But the companies needed to sound like they could be a big deal. Venture capitalist Michael Moe says VCs use certain criteria when looking at investments. He calls them the four Ps. The first P is potential. I mean, what kind of need are we addressing and how big is that and how fast can we reach the potential? 
The next P is product. VCs want to invest in companies that are or could be the leader in their category. Like remember when Pets.com wanted to be the category killer? That's product. The third P is predictability. Sure, the startup seems fine now, but what about next year or in five years? Will it still be growing? The last P and the one that's really important here is people. VCs want to believe in the entrepreneurs. You're looking for great people, people that are winners that you can bet on. Institutional venture capitalists are people too and get swayed by compelling stories. They get excited by uh, an entrepreneur that has a lot of passion and that can lay out a story that can have you believe that um, the future is basically happening today and how you're going to have a seat you know, on this incredible ride that you know, the entrepreneur is able to, to, to outline in terms of what, you know, what this opportunity is about. The thing about a story is that who you believe and whose story is compelling to you is entirely subjective. When he was pitching Black Planet, Omar says that he met with investors who didn't even think enough Black people had the internet. Meanwhile, Black Planet users are over here building their own internet. Omar went to a lot of awkward meetings with people who had very large pockets but absolutely no clue. I wouldn't say there was ever anything that was like explicitly bigoted. What what you would get was things like we were raising money for the Latino site and someone's like, oh, you've got Black Planet. Why don't you launch uh, the Latino site and call it like, God, what was it? It was something so stupid. It was like Rojo Moon. Rojo Moon. To whoever made that Rojo Moon joke, you better be committed to anti-racism work and have evolved significantly since then. Seriously. The investors' ignorance about Black Planet wasn't limited to bad jokes. Omar says that venture capitalists would put Black Planet in the same category as basically any other companies serving the Black community, even if the companies were completely different. We were really a technology-focused company, but we were based on the East Coast, and a lot of the investors on the East Coast were betting on media companies. And so some of the companies that we were competing against for money, for, for funding, um, had a lot more sizzle in terms of like, you know, the names associated with their brands. Names like Russell Simmons and Sean Puffy Combs. They got in on the dot-com boom too and lent their brands to media content companies that would feature articles, interviews, and videos. Remember, this is the moment when hip-hop fully crosses over into the mainstream. Soon after we launched Black Planet, there were these other companies that were raising larger rounds and uh, and, and and they you know they seemed to be much more successful in the sense that they had you know beautiful marketing materials and um, were uh, just generating a ton of buzz. You know, we met with some of the same investors that backed a company like Urban Box Office. Urban Box Office was an internet portal that hosted websites for hip hop fans and quote unquote urban communities. It was trying to be a place where people went to engage with the culture. And even though it wasn't a social media site, not even a little bit, UBO was one of Black Planet's big competitors for investment. It was like we lost out to them from funders. And so, you know, I had to sort of look at like, what do they have and what do we have? To the investors who were interested in backing companies that had the potential to take over markets, Black Planet wasn't big enough. And to investors who wanted to bet on flashy media sites, Black Planet didn't have enough sizzle. There was a lot of money flying around in 1999, but Black Planet didn't get much of it. You know who did get a ton of money? Theglobe.com. 
After the break, we'll talk about theglobe.com and the pleather pants that rocked the investment world. Globe.com. It's a social network. People will want to log on. I guarantee. That's a clip from Nat Geo's docudrama, Valley of the Boom. And though it's not really remembered in the pantheon of early social networking like MySpace or LiveJournal, the Globe was definitely one of the first sites that signaled where the internet was heading. And whew, let's just take a moment and consider a world where social media wasn't even a thing. God, don't you just feel lighter and a little happier and more free picturing that? I know. Anyway, The Globe was a site where people could access portals and chat rooms. The founders, Stefan Paterno and Todd Kreiselman, launched it from their dorm room at Cornell. Sound familiar? Here's Stefan talking to PBS. Well, uh, theglobe.com is a, is a website that Todd and I both started back in 94. And what it is essentially is a, one of the most trusted network of communities that brings people from around the world to interact about, around subjects of interest. Stefan knew how to talk the talk. The Globe had an ambitious dream investors wanted to hear. I think what they're buying into is, a, is an extremely exciting story of, of, of huge organic growth. Uh, one where we are creating uh, a future virtual community, a new economy in a sense. I mean, the internet itself, of course, is one of the biggest socioeconomic impacts on the planet. And I think a lot of investors are looking to get in on the net, period. But I think what the globe brings is a unique fusion of community, commerce, content, an experience that you know people love, uh, a well-recognized brand now, and I think an opportunity to become one of the biggest players in the world. Initially, the globe's founders started the company with $15,000 that they scraped together from family and friends over their winter break. But in 1997, they were able to secure a $20 million investment from Michael Egan, a man who made his fortune buying and selling the company Alamo Rent-A-Car. At the time, it was widely believed to be the most money a single individual had invested in an internet company. Here's Stefan talking about it to CNN. While uh, President of Cornell was down in Florida trying to raise money for, for, for Cornell from Egan, uh, Michael had mentioned to him, well, you know, I just sold Alamo Rent-A-Car. I'm really looking for the, my last great hurrah, and I think I'd like to get into the media business. And Hunter said to him, well, you know, I think I might just have the right two guys for you to meet. And, of course, we ended up all going back up to Cornell, met with Michael, had a five-hour lunch with him, and after five hours, he said, I want in. <sighs> Don't you just love that good old Ivy League system where one group of Ivy League white guys knows another Ivy League white guy who brings in another Ivy League white guy, and boom, a deal is made? It's the kind of deal that would have made all the difference to Omar Wasso of Black Planet. But that door wasn't open to him. And it's not like Omar wasn't well-connected. He went to fancy-ass Stuyvesant High School in New York City and graduated from Stanford. No, the fundamental difference here is that Omar's business was catering to a community that VCs did not see the potential for. And just to check in on the popularity of theglobe.com, at their peak, they had 1.3 million users. So they were pretty popular, but not ubiquitous like Facebook or Instagram are today. At the time, Wired.com actually called them a second-tier site. But investors saw that Michael Moe P in the globe. Potential. On IPO day, November 13th, 1998, Globe.com's share price jumped 600%, setting a record for the largest jump in a single day. At some point that day, the company was valued at $842 million. Overnight, the two college students who started the Globe in their dorm room were multimillionaires. And almost immediately, they started blowing money fast. 
you know the drill, impulsive buys, lavish parties. Todd had a penchant for renting large houses on the beach for weekend parties with all of his friends, while Stefan cashed out in the clubs. And that's exactly where CNN found him in 1999. Meet the boys. First, there's Stefan Paterno. Like any number of New York 20-somethings, he's partying hard on a Friday night at a hot nightclub called Float. When the doc starts, Stefan is in the club. He's dancing on a table with his girlfriend who's wearing a very fetching button-down belly shirt. But the real star of this production is his pleather pants. Paterno grew up in Switzerland and London and speaks fluent French, contributing to his self-described Eurotrash style, which includes wearing black, shiny pants. This is the part in the documentary where he takes a break to make out with his girlfriend. Let's go, let's party. Now these pants are truly awful. They're tacky in a way that is very specific to the late 90s. They're black and shiny and wrinkly in all the wrong places. It just added to the narrative that theglobe.com and its founders were a joke. And if that wasn't cringy enough, here's what Stefan had to say about his newfound wealth. Got the girl, got the money. (laughs) Now I'm ready to live a disgusting, frivolous life. Theglobe.com's founders were on top of the world. But there was a growing skepticism about wild IPOs and the millionaire man-child CEOs. The documentary made Stefan look more like an aging rock star than a tech executive. People started calling him the CEO in the plastic pants. When you get a $20 million investment, you go public and raise almost $30 million on top of that. You've basically created a list of people you owe, and you've got a lot of big expectations to meet. And let's say you're one of those investors who put their good money down for this company, and a year later, homie's dancing on a table in bad pleather pants. To the investors, it wasn't funny. Ultimately, there were a lot of reasons why the Globe.com wasn't successful, not just one. Pants or no pants, they couldn't deliver the users or the advertising dollars that the investors expected. Here's Michael Moe again. You know, one of the classic issues that these businesses had was they had a lot of market value without a business model that was um, either developed or made sense. This was true of a lot of internet startups at this time. And so, you know, you can have a business model that's not working um, for a while, but at some point the music stops and you need a chair to sit on. And if your business model doesn't, isn't working, that's a, that's a gigantic issue. A lot of times that is going to go back to the people, too, because, you know, being able to articulate a great story and how big a company can become and so forth um, isn't necessarily the same as the ability to get things done, make the right strategic decisions, you know, get the right business model. Todd and Stefan desperately tried to pivot. Using the Globe.com stock, they acquired an online department store and then a publisher of computer game reviews. What these things have to do with social media is a mystery to me. All of this spelled the end for theglobe.com. In 2000, just two years after the record-breaking IPO, the two man-child CEOs of theglobe.com and their pleather pants were forced to resign from the company that they started. And like the sock puppet, Stefan and his pants became the poster child for everything that was wrong with the money coming into technology. Even after their departure, the Globe was never able to bounce back and was delisted from the stock market in 2001. 
When asked about the company's downfall, Stefan very much blames his own shortcomings and the limitations of the time. But he also blames the rush to IPO. Here he is talking to Yahoo Finance in 2018. If you're an entrepreneur and your company is growing, don't go public. I think the public markets, I think the IPO process itself is broken. And I think even though the SEC is well-intentioned with wanting to protect unsuspecting, unsophisticated investors from unscrupulous companies and people raising money, they've accidentally gamified the system for all short-term focused results. For Omar Wasso, the founder of Black Planet, the big check and the record-breaking IPO never came. And maybe if it had, Black Planet would have met the same fate as the globe. But after the bubble burst, ta-da, Black Planet was still standing. In a sea of companies trying to be everything for everyone, Black Planet survived by being something special for just one group. Omar actually remembers when the globe.com went under. When the dot-com wipeout happened, it just was gone in, it felt like hours. And it's in part because there was just not much that distinguished it from other general market offerings. And by super serving the black community, we had a defensible product. We weren't like one of like 20 products that were trying to serve everybody. We were, um, you know, a, a company that had a really core foundation in the black community, had a really loyal user base, and that allowed us to get across that desert of the dot-com bubble. And because Black Planet never got a ton of VC money, they figured out other ways to make bank. We launched a paid dating service where we were trying to take the, you know, essentially you could think of it now, you would call it a freemium model, but it was like 99% of the site uh, was free. And so those people were paying, I think it was about $20 a month. And when the dot-com bubble hit, that meant we were no longer as dependent on advertising and we were bringing in, I don't remember the numbers now, but, you know, call it a few million dollars a year from the dating service. And that meant we were able to survive as the ad revenue dropped dramatically by having some of our revenue come from our users, not from advertisers. So Black Planet outlasted the Globe.com, Urban Box Office, and all those media sites Russell Simmons and Puffy lent their names to. But Omar says what saved Black Planet in 2000 was its downfall in the next internet era. As things started to pick up post-crash, we didn't sort of uh, have the kind of ambitious plans that we needed to kind of catch the next wave. And so part of what allowed us to, you know, succeed both general market and kind of African-American urban hip hop oriented sites was the way in which we were focused and lean. But part of what also meant that we didn't become MySpace and we didn't become Facebook is that we weren't making that really big bet that might have killed us in 2001, but was the opportunity to become, you know, a multi-billion dollar company in 2003. These days, Omar is a political science professor at Princeton. In 2005, he left Black Planet to go to grad school. When he left, the company still had millions of users and was even getting Kanye West shoutouts. You now girls on Black Planet B when they get bubbly at NYU, but she hailed from Kansas. Right now she just lamping. But the phone you're probably looking at right now can tell you what happened next. Behemoths like Facebook and Twitter became more popular and eventually dominated social media, ruined our elections, and stole our sanity. In 2008, Black Planet was sold to Black radio station conglomerate Radio One for $38 million. And while that might seem like a lot of money to you and me, it isn't. To put it in context, Rupert Murdoch bought MySpace in 2005 for $580 million. You know, being a niche site meant that we... 
didn't have you know dozens of people bidding on the site, and that ultimately means that the price isn't being bid up. Um, you know what people are betting on is growth, and if they think of you as a black site, they sort of say, oh well, you know that's you're, you're, you could be as big as Canada, but we want something that could be hundreds of millions of people or something. Stands like Shanita Hubbard still miss the old Black Planet. It felt like showing up at a family reunion, you know, and just ha- picking up a, a conversation with one of your cousins, right? You just didn't have to explain yourself in that space. You didn't have to code switch in that space. You can be free. You can be yourself. It was it was liberating. It was freeing, and it was just like you know, it felt like fa- it felt like home, right? So for somebody to say, "Why do Black people need this?" It to me, it feels like they're saying, "Why do Black people need home?" Everyone needs a space. Everyone needs a community. And that was ours. Actually, Black Planet is still technically around. You can still access your page, but it's largely a source of nostalgia for Gen Xers and older millennials. Last year, Solange paid homage on the site when she used a Black Planet page to market her album, When I Get Home. Omar is cool with his place in internet culture and likes that Black Planet was something special for Black internet users when the internet was still new. He referenced the idea made popular by Michael Harriet, who writes for The Root, about being Black famous. Someone like soul singer Frankie Beverly, whose music is ubiquitous among Black folks, but not really known outside the community. And I think that's a little bit we, we're like, a, you know, an inside the black community musician who's super influential on other musicians and, 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 and has a revered, you know, kind of a loved spot in the black community's heart. But for the larger community is, you know, the fact that we influence MySpace is, you know, nobody knows that. Next time on Go For Broke, we look at other forces that kept the dot-com boom running, even when things weren't looking so hot. There is a whole system, right? The banks, the press, CNBC, all had incentive to sort of keep the game going. And then the bottom falls out. Special thanks to Aaliyah King, author of the article, The Black Internet Gold Rush That Wiped Away $75 Million in 18 Months. We'll link to the article in the show notes. Special thanks to Epic's Joshua Behrman. Charlotte Silver is our associate producer. Our consulting producer is Melise Tusseray. Go For Broke is produced by Bridget Armstrong, Megan Kinane, and Zach Mack. Isaac Kestenbaum is our editor. Anil Dash is our editorial consultant for the series. Nathan Miller engineered this episode. Gautam Trikishan composed our theme song. Art Chung is our showrunner. Our executive producer is Nishat Kerwa. Go For Broke is a production of Epic and the Vox Media Podcast Network. If you liked this episode, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend. We just need lots of reviews in there because there's one guy that says I have a lisp and I definitely don't. Anyway, help me out. And subscribe for free to the series on your favorite podcast app. I'm Julia Furlan, and I'm so glad you're still listening because I need you to Google Flu's Whoopi Goldberg. Make this make sense to me. Make this business model make sense. Okay, bye.